From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 68, The Columbia River Quarantine Station and the USS Concord. The Columbia River Quarantine Station was established on the 9th of May, 1899, at Napton Cove, which is about six miles across the Columbia River from Astoria, Oregon. On the 13th of December, 1900, the construction phase had been completed. The quarantine station served as a ship disinfection station as well as an isolation facility for people with infectious diseases. Astoria was the sole federal maritime quarantine inspection station in Oregon at the time, and the only one between San Francisco and Port Townsend. The first federal quarantine restrictions were created in 1878 and they were refined over the years. During the years following the bloody Civil War, the peacetime boom saw the rapid increase of goods and people being transported around the country, and where there's people, there's bound to be some sort of infectious disease present, especially in those days of poor hygiene and a general lack of how germs worked. The first federal quarantine restrictions of 1878 started from an outbreak of yellow fever in New Orleans, mainly stemming from a tide of immigrants coming from the Caribbean, including heavy numbers of Cubans. When the United States was founded, little was done to prevent contagious diseases from entering the country. Local and state governments were primarily responsible for disease prevention. Various quarantine restrictions for approaching vessels were enacted by individual communities, though due to this sporadic enforcement, they didn't amount to much. Quarantine restrictions were imposed loosely by state and local governments. Yellow fever outbreaks persisted long enough for Congress to finally establish federal quarantine legislation in 1878. While not infringing on states' sovereignty, this measure declared the stage for federal intervention and quarantine activities, and much more in the years to come. Cholera outbreaks on passenger ships arriving from Europe spurred a rewriting of the statute in 1892, giving the federal government more power over quarantine rules. Congress approved legislation the next year that clarified the federal responsibility in quarantine operations. Local quarantine stations were gradually handed over to the federal government as local authorities realized the benefits of federal engagement. To provide better coverage, more government facilities would be established over the years and the number of employees would be greatly expanded as well. By 1921, when the last local quarantine station was handed over to the federal government, the quarantine system had been entirely nationalized. It only took them nearly 45 years to achieve this, but hey, progress is progress, right? The Public Health Service Act of 1944 for the first time solidified the federal government's quarantine jurisdiction. The act assigned responsibility for preventing the import, transmission, and spread of contagious illnesses into the United States to the U.S. Public Health Service. In 1939, Quarantine and PHS, its parent organization, were transferred from the Treasury Department to the Federal Security Agency. PHS and quarantine became part of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in 1953. In 1967, quarantine was transferred to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But enough about that. Let's shift back to a more evergreen state focus. That's why we're here, right? 
The U.S. Senate ended up passing a resolution on the 26th of June, 1894, mandating that all correspondents supporting the urgent need for a quarantine hospital at or near the mouth of the Columbia River to complement existing quarantine inspection operations at the Port of Astoria be forwarded to the Senate promptly. The Marine Hospital Services Supervising Surgeon General Walter Wyman wrote, While the inspection of vessels at the mouth of the Columbia River is faithfully carried on, no provision is made, therefore, for the carrying of the sick taken from an infected vessel or the purification of the vessel itself. The nearest properly equipped quarantine station is at Port Townsend, some 275 miles distant, and should an infected vessel arrive at the mouth of the Columbia River, the vessel would have to be remanded to the Port Townsend quarantine, entailing not only expense but undue hardship upon the sick. The Eureka and Epicure Packing Company, a salmon cannery which was operated by Columbia River salmon canning pioneers William, John, and George Hume, was located at the Napton Cove site from 1876 until it shuttered in 1899. Residents of Astoria, desperate to avoid contact with sick people, looked across the Columbia to the abandoned cannery site, which was sheltered on a deep channel and had existing structures, and regarded it as a perfect location for isolating infectious individuals. The few but tenacious Napton settlers resisted but were sternly overruled. The establishing physician was Assistant Surgeon Hill Hastings. Dr. Bales H. Earl of the United States Marine Hospital Service took over his duties after only a couple of months. Before unloading or loading cargo or going up the Columbia River, all vessels coming from foreign ports were required to pass through quarantine. The Columbia River Quarantine Station was also required to clear outgoing vessels destined for foreign ports. Fumigation was used to kill fleas that could convey the bubonic plague. These fleas fed on rats in the ship's hold, as well as on human passengers on occasion. Passengers were screened for flu, cholera, malaria, smallpox, yellow fever, and leprosy symptoms. The worldwide two-foot-by-two-foot yellow signal flag marked Q, meaning quarantine inspection required, was raised by ships arriving at the port of Astoria. This is also known as request for critique. Two Q flags flown one over the other indicated, and still indicates to this day, that the ship is quarantined due to disease on board. The public health officer, a physician, was escorted to the vessel by an immigration official. They boarded the ship and dispatched it across the Columbia to be fumigated at Napton if rats or other pests were discovered aboard. In 1912, a hospital for the exclusive purpose of quarantining sick individuals was established near the port to hold crewmen and passengers alike. The Napton complex was dubbed the Ellis Island for this district in a 1921 article in the Sunday Oregonian. The nation's first and largest federal immigration center was located on Ellis Island in New York Harbor. The method at Napton Cove is described in detail in the article. There are two quarantine grounds where ships are held until given clearance. Ships entering or leaving the harbor must anchor here under the quarantine flag until released. At the quarantine station, there is full equipment for fumigating ships, bathing and inspecting immigrants, and cleaning their clothing. Immense superheated machines receive the clothing of aliens entering the country, wherein the vermin are exterminated by the application of dry heat. Immigrants enter the quarters, disrobe, and while bathing, their clothing is deloused and all of their belongings are put through the heating drums. Before receiving their cleansed garments, they pass before a staff of doctors, and any who are found infected or below the physical standards set are placed in detention quarters aboard the hulk of the former gunboat Concord and held to await deportation. 
Vessels detained for fumigation at Astoria can be taken to the station and have the vapor so deadly to rats and vermin pumped into their holds from retorts located at the docks. Most of the fumigation is done, however, by means of sulfur which is burned in huge pots placed in the vessel's holds. Quarantine officials take these pots aboard ships, place them advantageously so there will be no danger from spreading fire, light the sulfur, and batten down the hatches so as to retain all of the fumes possible within the ship. The sulfur pots are placed in tubs of water, the heat evaporating the water, and the moisture aiding materially in getting dense fumes. It took 48 hours to complete the fumigation operation. The passengers were either held in the isolation hospital or on board the Concord at this time. The Concord was a decommissioned ship from the Spanish-American War. It was launched in March of 1890 and she was powered by two steam engines and three schooner-rigged masts. The main battery of the ship consisted of six six 6-inch guns which were supplemented by a variety of lesser caliber guns. If you've ever been to Fort Casey, think of the big guns they have on display. That's the same caliber as what the Concord was armed with, but much smaller in size. Commander O.A. Bacheller commanded the USS Concord PG-3 when it was commissioned on the 14th of February, 1891. Concord sailed from New York City on the 17th of November, 1891, with her squadron on a tour to the West Indies and South America, then landed at New Orleans, Louisiana on the 27th of April, 1892, and proceeded to cruise up the Mississippi River to Cairo, Illinois, stopping at several ports along the way. Concord then returned to New York on the 13th of June, 1892, for a second excursion to the West Indies later that year. Arriving back in Norfolk, Virginia on the 5th of December, in March and April of the next year, she took part in the International Naval Review in Norfolk and New York, and that June, she sailed to the Far East, stopping in the Azores, Gibraltar, Malta, Port Said, Bangkok, and Saigon before arriving in Hong Kong on the 30th of October. She sailed on the Asiatic Station until arriving at Unalaska, which is the chief center of population in the Aleutian Islands. On the 29th of May, 1894, she was on a sealing patrol in the North Pacific, enforcing the terms of a treaty between the U.S. and the U.K., which gave Concord the authority to take any vessel-breaking regulations safeguarding precious fur seals. Concord then returned to the Asiatic Station in September of 1894 and served in the Far East until the 3rd of May 1896, when she returned to San Francisco. Between the 22nd of May and the 27th, 1896, the Concord was out of operation for repairs. She sailed from Mare Island on the 8th of January 1898 for the Asiatic Squadron under the leadership of Commander, later Rear Admiral Asa Walker, following a mission to Alaskan waters from the 1st of July to the 29th of November. When Spain and the United States declared war that April, Concord joined Admiral George Dewey's fleet in Mers Bay near Hong Kong and headed for the Philippines. Concord took part in the Battle of Manila Bay on the 1st of May, resulting in American control of the Philippines. Concord returned to station in August of 1898, but was dispatched to the Philippines on the 19th of December to aid in the suppression of the insurgency. Her responsibilities included patrolling the coast to prevent insurgents from moving or shipping, blasting several strongholds, and assisting U.S. Army operations. If you would like to learn more about the Evergreen State's involvement in the Spanish-American War and the Phil-American War, consider checking out the early two bonus episodes I released back in September and August of 2021. Anyways, 
except for a trip to Guam in March of 1900 to carry supplies and a brief trip to Hong Kong for repairs, Concord stayed in Philippine seas until June of 1901 when she then traveled to San Francisco through Alaskan waters, arriving on the 28th of September 1901. She operated with the fleet in Mexican waters before being decommissioned at Mare Island on the 26th of February 1902. This retirement wasn't meant to be for long, though, and on the 15th of June, 1903, she was recommissioned. Concord then served around the North American coast from Alaska to Panama, including Hawaii, until she was decommissioned once again on the 25th of August, 1904, in Bremerton. Becoming a bit of a trend with this ship, the Concord was recommissioned on the 16th of September, 1905, and sailed from Bremerton for operations in the Philippines on Christmas Eve of 1905. Concord then traveled to China in March of 1906. She continued her stay in the Far East until 1908, where she saw frequent operations on the Yangtze Patrol and as a station ship in Shanghai and Canton. Concord operated as a station ship at Guam from the 2nd of January to the 10th of September 1909 before once again returning to the Puget Sound Naval Yard on the 11th of October. The Concorde's final decommissioning occurred on the 4th of November, 1909. She would then be transferred to the Washington Naval Militia to be used as a barrack ship in Seattle. On the 15th of June, 1914, she would be reassigned to the Treasury Department's Public Health Service. Now, you might be wondering why I chose to spend some time talking about the Concorde, and it's mainly due to strong childhood memories associated with some 6-inch guns that were once aboard her. Remember those guns that used to be installed right outside of the Woodland Park Zoo? I sure do. I used to climb all over them and wonder why they were in the middle of Seattle when I was a young kid whenever we went to the zoo. I was far too young to be able to do the research and find out why they were there, but when I became a teenager, I did finally do that research and learn a little history of these guns. You can guess my terrible disappointment when they were removed from the Woodland Park War Garden. These guns were actually installed in the park all the way back in August of 1915. The Seattle Times reported on the 15th of August, Under the direction of the United States Spanish War veterans, two 6-inch guns from the U.S. cruiser Concord, which saw active service at the Battle of Manila, were brought to Seattle from Bremerton yesterday afternoon and will be mounted in Woodland Park in the near future. WSF Quick, chairman of the United Spanish War Veterans Club of Seattle's Board of Management, signed a receipt for government property worth $18,000 yesterday, giving the local veterans practical possession of the pieces for the time being. Battery Dewey will be the name of the two guns after they are mounted. These guns had actually been a frequent concern for park staff who saw the guns being used by children as playground equipment. Guilty as charged. My apologies and by 2018, it was determined that the guns were a safety risk and were also leading to the contamination of ground soil around the guns since they were painted with lead paint. The city estimated that it would cost over half a million dollars to clean the soil, restore the weapons, and mount them on child-resistant mounts, a sum apparently far too large for the city to want anything to do with. It's a shame they didn't feel like continuing to honor the veterans of the Spanish-American War. The Veterans Memorial Museum reached out to the city about saving these guns and restoring the monument at their museum down near Centralia. If you're ever down that way and have a couple hours, the Veterans Memorial Museum is totally worth a visit. Anyways, back to Napton Cove now. The quarantine office was relocated from Napton to Portland in 1928, forcing quarantine officers to commute. 
Sulfur pot fumigation was replaced by cyanide gas fumigation in 1929. Only the most serious isolation patients were held at Napton, allowing ships to be decontaminated at anchor closer to Astoria. In 1938, the Napton quarantine station was decommissioned. Clarence and Catherine Bell bought the site at a government surplus property sale in 1950 and turned it into a fishing camp and mooring facility. The National Register of Historic Places listed the Napton Quarantine Station in 1980. The Napton Cove Heritage Center, a small museum dedicated to preserving and understanding the quarantine station's significance in the history of maritime immigration, has been housed in the hospital building since 1995. The Heritage Center is fascinating and totally worth a stop in if you are in the area and they are open. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Astoria, Oregon Culture, Tales, and History group on Facebook for originally inspiring me to start research on this topic when I saw a very interesting post made by a member there. Check them out on Facebook, it's loaded with great history and the members are incredibly knowledgeable. Other sources include the Pacific County Historical Society, the National Park Service, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, HistoryLink.org, Exploring Washington's Past, A Road Guide to History by Ruth Kirk and Carmela Alexander, The Columbia River's Ellis Island, The Story of Napton Cove by Nancy Bell Anderson, KUOW, and The Sunday Oregonian. Thank you for listening to Episode 68, The Columbia River Quarantine Station and the USS Concord. Sorry for this one being a little short, but I'm battling the tail end of a cold, so hopefully next week I'll be able to tackle a slightly longer one. Episode 69 will be released next week. Looking ahead to the near future, Episode 70 is going to be food-themed once again for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. The theme this year is all about sweet treats of the Evergreen State. If you missed last year's Thanksgiving special episode, that one was all about huge food events of the Evergreen State, so if you missed it, go check it out now. I had a blast researching and putting that one together, and this year's one was just as fun to put together. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast, and until next time, I'm your host, John C. Go Kraken. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stilicum where spouts the gooey duck, the singing stilaguamish and the swirling skookum chuck, and moclips and copalis where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.